Episode 37. Welcome, GNN fans, to another episode of God Network News, the podcast that tells you what God's doing around the world, not what CNN tells you, but what GNN tells you is going on in the world. If you're tired of listening to all of that crisis network news and you want to hear what God's doing, well, give us a listen. This podcast is proudly listed at podcastpickle.com. In this episode of GNN, uh, we will be continuing with our reading of chapters from the new book, There's a Sheep in My Bathtub. And I hope that you're enjoying listening to these chapters. And again, this is our gift to you, our faithful listeners, as a free audio book to you of this really fantastic, really exciting, new and innovative book that has come out by Brian Hogan. And again, in the show notes, you can find a hot link to where you can get your own hard copy of that if you wish. One of our sponsors is GoDaddy.com. And GoDaddy.com has just recently told us that we could give you a special deal. If you click on the GoDaddy.com icon on our website and go to GoDaddy.com, anything that you purchase there, you can get a 10% discount if you put our promo code in there. Our promo code is CJC and then the word SAVE and the number 10. Again, that's C-J-C-S-A-V-E and the number 10. And then you'll get 10% discount off of anything that you order through GoDaddy.com. Visit GoDaddy.com today and get all of your internet needs taken care of. And so we want to thank you for being faithful listeners to us. Uh, We're trying to continue to give you good content here, something that is really worthwhile to listen to and take the time to listen to. Please do send us a comment, send us an email, something to encourage us, or just to even let us know what you'd like to be listening to. So again, our website URL is www.godnews.podomatic.com. Again, that's www.godnews.podomatic.com. That's our website. Please go to that. You'll find lots of other free resources and good materials on there. And the show notes, of course, are on there. And we give you hot links to where you can even send us an audio message if you'd like to. And we'd love to play that over our next episodes. So please go ahead and leave us an audio comment or just send us a an email message there as well. You can do that and take advantage again of all of our hot links to our friends, our other podcast friends that do help us a lot 
And of course, we again want to thank you and say God bless you to those of you that have been so faithfully following us. So let's go ahead and listen right now to There's a Sheep in My Bathtub. There's a Sheep in My Bathtub. Birth of a Mongolian Church Planting Movement. Read by Brian Hogan. Chapter 4. Getting a Little Perspective. That second year in Hard Rock, 1988 and 89, really set the course for the rest of our lives. We worked very hard on getting along with our co-workers and saw real openness and friendships developed. Apparently, our refusal to cut and run made an impact and caused many to reevaluate us. Our ministry off-compound continued to blossom, and as it looked increasingly like the school would be closing the following year for lack of teachers, we began to dream of a ministry solely among the Navajo camps, or possibly on an NGM team in another tribe. We felt like we had found our place and our calling, and we were going to spend the rest of our lives working among Native Americans. Then something happened that changed everything. Tim Brown brought a class called Perspectives on the World Christian Movement into NGM as he joined staff in our Flagstaff headquarters. This 17-week college credit course on missions was going to be taught live in Flagstaff and brought out 108 miles to Hard Rock via the magic of videotape. We were all encouraged to take this class. To be honest, we were not very interested. We were already missionaries and couldn't see the value of studying something that we thought we were fairly expert in. Besides, Louise was due to deliver our second child during the second half of the class. We had contracted with a midwife in Flagstaff, but she felt that we were too remote for a home birth and had suggested that we get a nice hotel room in town when the time came. With our boys and Melody to care for and another baby on the way, we didn't feel the timing was right to take this class. Tim was very persuasive. He told me, Brian, you really need to take this course. When he finally convinced me, he wouldn't let me take it alone. Tim explained this class would impact my life and ministry so profoundly that Louise would be left behind and confused when the changes came. Eventually, we both decided to take it. It was a lot of work. We put in many hours of reading and taking quizzes every week. We would gather in the dining hall with the other students, all missionaries, and listen to teachers like Don Richardson and Betty Sue Brewster call into question almost everything we were doing as a mission. It dismayed and invigorated us at the same time. A whole new world opened up for us. God took our breath away with his unchanging mission purpose that runs through the Bible from Genesis to Revelations. The historical lessons really captured my imagination by showing me how God pursued his passion for the nations across human history, even after the close of Scripture. As we studied culture under the world's foremost missionary minds, the lights began to come on, and we understood what we had been observing among the Navajo. But it was in the strategy section of Perspectives that Louise and I were arrested with a vision that would impact the rest of our lives and end up propelling our family out into the ends of the earth. One of our 17 Perspectives professors was an older man with a surplus of energy and passion named George Patterson. 
George and his wife, Denny, had served in Honduras, pioneering principles of church planting that resulted in spontaneous multiplication of churches. I shouldn't say pioneering, rather rediscovering. The principles George taught us were straight from the New Testament. George had taken Jesus seriously in the Great Commission. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. He had begun training his disciples to immediately begin obeying the simple and clear commands of Christ in the New Testament. Things like loving God and other people, repenting, believing, and receiving the Holy Spirit, getting baptized, and baptizing others, celebrating the Lord's Supper, praying, giving generously, and making disciples. This resulted in explosive growth, not only in numbers of believers, but in daughter and granddaughter congregations. This possibility captured our hearts. We longed to be part of starting a church-planting movement out among the completely unreached people groups we had been learning about. Suddenly, the call we had been struggling to bring into focus, our calling to missions, was crystal clear. We had been created to plant churches where the name of Jesus was not even known. Like Paul put it, we were not to build on someone else's foundation, as we'd been doing in Hard Rock, but where Christ had never been preached. Our future was clearer than it ever had been, and the next step was to finish our two-year commitment at Hard Rock and head out for the unreached. The most accurate term for this job was the Bible's word for it, Apostle. The original meaning of sent one described perfectly what we were called to be as church planters. Molly Ann joined our family on Election Day 88 in a home berth at the Quality Suites in Flagstaff. Louise didn't finish the work required to get her prospective certificate, but the damage had been done. We were both intent on getting to the field to work among people groups classified as completely unreached by the gospel. The Navajo were 25% Christian. In fact, our friend Rick Leatherwood was working on mobilizing Navajo missionaries in hopes of eventually using them to penetrate Mongolia. Other than falling off a 40-foot cliff and breaking my jaw, which required surgery and a week in the hospital, the rest of our time on the reservation was really fulfilling. Our Navajo boys adored baby Molly and wanted to hold her almost constantly. One evening, I went out to the TV room to fetch Molly back from the boys so that Louise could nurse her. Louise noticed our new baby smelled a lot like Doritos and asked me to tell the boys to be careful with food around Molly as she was too young to eat anything solid yet. When I told them this, they said, Oh, don't worry, Brian. We chewed up the chips real good before we fed them to Molly. So Molly's first solid food was chewed up Doritos, lovingly fed to her by her Navajo big brothers. I couldn't blame them. That was how they had seen baby siblings fed at home in the Hogan. Meanwhile, back in Hard Rock, transition was in the air. Meanwhile, back in Hard Rock, transition was in the air. Due to the closure of the Navajo Christian Academy, many on staff were looking for off-compound ministry opportunities. Our family didn't stick out as much as usual as we made plans to move again. We hoped to go straight into training with Youth with a Mission, as we'd heard of a new school they had called the School of Frontier Mission that trained long-term church planters for the unreached. 
we were going to apply for one at their Pasadena, California base right next to the United States Center for World Mission. We were familiar with the center through the Leatherwoods, who used to be on staff there, and through the Perspectives course, which was created there. I figured we could stay with my mom and volunteer at the center for a couple of weeks while we talked with the YWAM folks about our training. As a new short-term volunteer, I was assigned to the center's mobilization department, mainly working with churches around the country to encourage and motivate towards greater involvement in frontier missions. My supervisor was a young guy named Wes Tullis. One day, over lunch with Wes, I was discussing our plans to get out into the field, and he challenged me. He told me that Louise and I should replace ourselves at home with at least ten people each who would catch the same passion for missions that we had already. I nodded politely, but inside was chafing at even the thought of delaying it all to mobilize others in the States. I remember telling Louise about Wes's words that night and saying how I knew the idea was not from God, as if God would want us to wait here while so many were perishing without him elsewhere. Yet the YWAM door seemed closed when we were not accepted in time to make the Pasadena training, so a bit confused we moved back north to Los Osos and our home church to see what would happen next. A friend and former employer hired me for a sales position selling pagers. We were still very excited about all we had discovered and wanted to pass it along. We started up a small class in the church, a sort of mini-perspectives. Twenty people signed up to take the twelve video-based lessons with us. We were amazed. The material had the same powerful impact on them that it had had on us back in Hard Rock. They begged us to offer the full Perspectives program in our county. They took up a collection and sent me to the Perspectives Coordinators Workshop in Pasadena. When I came back home, I planned the course, invited the biggest names in missions to speak, and they all agreed to come. We ended up with over a hundred students from all over San Luis Obispo County in that first Los Osos Perspectives class in 1991. About halfway through the class, on March 1st, Louise gave birth to our third daughter, Alice Marie. Once again, she'd had an excellent excuse for not finishing the readings and getting a certificate. We offered the class again the next year in northern San Luis Obispo County and had another hundred students. This time, Louise finally got her certificate of completion. All told, rather than the 20 Wes had challenged us for, we had spread the vision to 220 disciples. I had to admit our weight was probably God's idea after all. At the end of our second course, we had all the students pray for us and send us out. We were on our way to Salem, Oregon, where another YWAM base had accepted us as candidates for their School of Frontier mission. At long last... We were on our way. In June of 1992, we sold everything we owned except our clothes and our Subaru wagon and moved again, this time onto the campus of the Battle Creek Mission, otherwise known as YWAM Salem. Over the summer, we were students in a crossroads discipleship training school. These DTS courses fill the role of an application process in YWAM, enabling the mission and the candidate to get to know each other before they commit to working together. There is no other way to enter YWAM. We joined the DTS reluctantly, but in obedience. We were frustrated by the delay, but on the other hand, the Frontier Mission School we had come to take didn't start until September anyway, so we were free. It turned out to be one of the best things we ever did. The relationships formed with fellow students and staff were life-changing, 
as was the teaching. The focus was on getting the messengers straightened out before sending them out with the message. It turned out that we had as much junk inside as the next guy, and the cleansing and empowering was both astonishing and necessary. We had been feeling more and more that God was calling us to Mongolia, which had opened up along with the rest of the Soviet world three years earlier. We had never gotten it out of our hearts or minds since God had used the Leatherwoods to plant the seed. We'd kept in touch with Rick and had been thrilled as he took teams of Navajos into Mongolia in 89 and 90 and led the first three to Christ on Mongolian soil. There were scattered conversions among Mongolians studying in Eastern Europe during the 1980s, but these didn't return to their homeland for safety reasons. YWAMers Peter Ilian and George Otis Jr. had secretly led a Mongol to Christ in an Ulaanbaatar hotel room in 1982, but this man was never heard from again. Lone sheep don't fare as well as lone wolves. We told everyone God was calling us to Asia, but between ourselves we talked most about Mongolia. My wife was not thrilled at the prospect of living in one of the world's coldest climates. Louise grew up in the blazing sands of the Mojave Desert and likes it hot. Even after I was convinced that God had chosen Mongolia for us, Louise needed confirmation after confirmation. I couldn't understand why God was willing to tell her over and over again, but he did confirm in so many ways. We saw a Mongolian gear as we drove up to Salem. A total stranger walked up to Louise in a grocery store and started telling her about his brother in the Peace Corps in Mongolia. Everywhere we turned, it was Mongolia, Mongolia, and more Mongolia. During the last week of our DTS, I went to Hong Kong to participate in YWAM's strategic conference on Mongolia. It was there I met a young Swedish couple who just finished a school of frontier missions in the Netherlands and had gone to Mongolia for their outreach. Magnus told us that he and Maria felt God's call to plant a church movement in Mongolia. As they shared their vision with me, I realized that we had been called to do the exact same thing using the same New Testament principles George Patterson had shared with us. It was like finding my heart beating in someone else's chest. We were all utterly committed to following the leading of the Holy Spirit as we used New Testament as a filter for everything we did in birthing the church into this virgin soil. We were convinced that the answers for seeing the church multiply among Mongolians were in the New Testament rather than in the methods and strategies of the experts. I told them right then and there we wanted to be a part of their team. From the consultation, I flew to Beijing and on to Mongolia. I took advantage of already being in Asia to get my first look at our future home on a brief fact-finding trip. I managed to visit with most of the first missionaries to arrive in the country and traveled with a team of Mongolian evangelists taking the newly completed Jesus film to several outlying towns, including the second largest city, Darhan. I was in Ulaanbaatar on the day the Leatherwood family moved into town. They would continue to serve there for eight years. The opportunities I saw everywhere I went encouraged me. Young Mongolians in particular were responsive, and everyone was curious about what our team had to say. I returned home and rejoined my family with just a couple of weeks to rest before our School of Frontier Missions training began. Our School of Frontier Missions, or SOFM, was a wonderful opportunity to train more in-depth in the missionary skills we had been exposed to through perspectives. I ended up serving in a staff capacity. 
Since perspectives was part of the SOFM curriculum and I was a perspectives coordinator, I was most qualified to lead that portion of the training. Our fellow candidates were training to serve on the frontiers with YWAM in Albania, Uzbekistan, Russia, Morocco, and one young guy was even preparing for Mongolia like us. His name was Lance Reinhardt, and he would prove to be a strong friend and teammate to our family in Mongolia. As we plowed into learning how to do missions and church planning effectively, I realized the careful way the Father had been preparing us over the last 12 years for this task. He had led us to and through unparalleled experiential hands-on missionary training in the vineyard, Jews for Jesus, inner city work, small group leadership, the Mizpah Boys Home, Navajo Gospel Mission, and the Hard Rock Compound, the Perspectives Course, Serving as Mobilizers, Discipleship Training School, and now the School of Frontier Missions. The lessons we'd learned, both positive and negative, the opportunity to learn missions by doing missions, had forged in both Louise and I a burning determination to do this work well without compromising New Testament principles. Looking back, we were both awed by our Father's unseen hand that had so accurately prepared us even as we seemed to be tripping and stumbling from one thing to another. When our school finished in December 1992, we stayed on the YWAM base volunteering in the Frontier Missions Office and making preparations for our biggest move ever. In February, we had tickets and plans to move our family of five from Salem, Oregon to Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia. Louise and the kids had never been outside the United States before. We were wrapped up in preparation, seeing doctors, assembling everything we'd need to live there, making banking arrangements, and calling and writing our support network. We finally discovered why Molly had always been such a fussy child when we took her to the doctor. Since early infancy, she seemed to have a sour disposition, and her digestion never seemed quite right. My mother, the nurse, insisted we run a stool test on Molly before we moved. We found she had a parasitic infection called Giardia. We suspected she'd picked it up along with her first solid meal served on unwashed but loving little Navajo fingers. As soon as the treatment took effect, Molly's whole personality transformed. Overnight, she became our family's peacemaker, encourager, and steadiest influence. As we pulled our move together, little did we imagine the spiritual warfare we'd have to engage in to even set foot in Mongolia.